Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Today is Thursday, July 13, 2023. Coming up on Roller Martin on the Filter, streaming live on the Black Star Network. The families of the victims of the tragic 2022 Buffalo Top Supermarket Massacre are taking legal action. One of the attorneys will be here to explain why they're going after social media firms and firearm manufacturers. The Department of Justice launches an investigation into Fulton County, Georgia, their jail where a black man, LaShawn Thompson, died covered in insects and filth. We'll be joined by civil rights attorney Ben Crump. Also speaking of the DOJ, they filed uh, to become part of the NAACP's lawsuit against the state of Mississippi, trying to create a separate legal system for the state's capital city. One of LA's largest hospitals, Cedar sinai Hospital, is facing a federal investigation over how they, over their treatment of black women, especially those having children. Plus, the family of a black Indiana man died after he was tased and handcuffed while naked during a mental health crisis. We'll be here with their attorneys to discuss their civil lawsuit. Uh, we also have a special report on the disproportionate use of menthol products in black communities. We'll examine how tobacco companies targeted black communities for years through black media. That's right, folks. Uh, also, uh, we will uh, continue the conversation. What is happening on these college campuses where now with white conservatives striking DEI, black faculty are, are turning elsewhere? It's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin on Filter, the Black Sun Network. Let's go. He's got whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. The families of those uh, murdered in the 2022 Buffalo Top Supermarket uh, hate crime are suing social media companies, firearm manufacturers, and body armor makers for helping the teenage killer load the gun that left 10 people dead and injured 
three others. The lawsuit filed in the state Supreme Court in Buffalo lists uh, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, uh, Amazon, Instagram, Reddit, Google, the parent company of YouTube, Vintage Firearms, the Endicott New York gun dealer where the racist mass, mass shooting legally purchased semi-automatic uh, rifle used in the rampage. Also, RMA Armament, the online company that sold the shooter's body armor as defendants. Lawsuit was filed on behalf of family members of Hayward Patterson, Aaron Salter, Marcus Morrison Sr., Pearl Young, Geraldine Talley, Ruth uh, Whitfield, and Roberta Drury, who were killed in the shooting. Survivor Zaire Goodman, his mother, uh, Zanetta Everhart, Christopher Brayton, uh, Brooklyn Howe, Keisha Douglas, Joanne Daniels, uh, Robia Gary, and her un uh, unnamed child are also plaintiffs. Joining me now is Deandra Debrasse Zimmerman. She is one of the attorneys representing the families. Glad to have you here. So what what basis by which you're suing the social media companies and the firearm manufacturers? What did they actually do? Well, that, that's a great question, Roland, and, and thanks for having me, and thanks for covering this issue on behalf of the families. Um, I, I think before we get to, to what they did and how we got here, we have to understand how they operate. And so while we are all, you know, in these applications and on these devices and we think they're fun, their design, these are products, are made to trap people. And if you look at some of the work that's been out there, whether it's Dopamine Labs or other documentaries that talk about the manner in which these applications were designed, they are designed to trap you emotionally and to trap you mentally. And so if you love bunnies... You're going to see posts about a thousand bunnies, and that algorithm is going to trap you in bunny land, and you're going to be buying bunny goods, and you're going to be thinking about bunnies. And if you are a white supremacist, which we are having quite the proliferation in this country and have had that for a long time, but it's growing exponentially, then you will be trapped in that realm of algorithms that drive you towards hatred of black people, hatred of brown people. This is how you join a militia. This is how you target black folks. When you take the additional layer of targeting youth, who we know don't have fully developed brains, who we know are susceptible to influence of all kinds, you begin to understand how extraordinarily dangerous these applications are. And this is not by happenstance. The very design of these applications are meant to trap our youth to make sure they stay on their applications. And why is that? Because they're selling ads, because that's how they make money. And so it's not enough to make money and to ignore just the risk that exists. But in this situation, the risk that was purposefully created. We saw the proliferation through the applications during the election. We saw the proliferation of Trump supporters and directed hatred towards our communities. And this is no different. And so they may not have pulled the trigger last year in May, but they helped Gendron load that gun. And we plan to hold them 100 percent responsible and accountable for what happened to the 10 families who've suffered a lost one, the other families who've been affected by a tremendous impact company to their community. And so while it seems complicated, it's quite simple. Um, same thing with the body armor manufacturers. Why are you selling body armor that's meant to be used in combat? We know why you're selling it, because you're targeting young, angry communities of white men who plan to unleash on us and need to 
protect their bodies when they open fire. And one of the heroes in this story is former Lieutenant Salter, who was a security guard, you know, at the tops that day. He risked his life to protect others. And because Gendron was using that armor, he was able to survive that shot and continue to kill other people on the premises. So it's a it's a tight causation line, and it's time that Meta, TikTok, all of these online providers be held accountable for the poison that they're unleashing in the Buffalo community and in our country. Um, got uh, three panelists here. Two of them are lawyers, and so uh, they have questions. Uh, Candace Kelly out of uh, New Jersey. Candace. Uh, your question for our guest. You know, I'm wondering, because the Supreme Court did talk about this, and Clarence Thomas, he wrote the key opinion, and he said that really when you talk about algorithms and enticing people um, in order to kind of do terrorist attacks, which is what the case was about, that he said they're simply algorithms and that they really have nothing to do with anything except that they're piquing people's interests. So I'm wondering what your feelings are about that and that the Supreme Court has spoken about that, that decision came um, in, in late May. Absolutely. And, and I think what we're talking about is the Communication Decency Act and the immunity of 230, which was developed long before people understood the impact. We believe that case has no bearing on this in the sense of what we are discussing is a defective product. So our claim is not about the content which has been the issue with the Supreme Court and the issue with a number of other courts. This is, and I'm primarily a product defect lawyer, this is a defective product, a product designed to create addiction. A lot of the facts of that case, very important facts, as you said, that has to do with terrorism, really focus on the content, right, bringing people in, recruiting people to participate in terrorist activity. Other cases involving human trafficking, focusing on the substance of the communication that the online provider was simply hosting information posted by others. And the courts found that that was protected by 230, Section 230 or the Communication Decency Act. That's not what we're talking about here. We're saying this is a defective product by mm. design and that it is extraordinarily dangerous. The proof is in the pudding, but also even in the intent of the design. It was meant to keep people trapped. So similarly, I sit in leadership on the social media MDL national case where we are addressing some of these issues. We believe it is outside of the immunity protections of the Communication Decency Act. And we pray that this is the court that sees that and allows us to hold the folks who are responsible responsible because these, these are just not uh, opinions or hosting people's opinions or the algorithms kind of in a vacuum. It is the application itself. The design is meant to do what it was, what is doing here and what led to the murder of 10 Americans in Buffalo in May of 2022. Um, civil rights attorney uh, out of Los Angeles, Joe Richardson. Joe? Hey, how you doing? I love this theory, and I was going to ask you uh, about, you know, sometimes when you are bringing cases, you know, on the consumer side, on the plaintiff side, uh, product liability, you're trying to advance a theory that would be a step uh, in a direction. I was going to ask what your what your previous steps were. And I think when you talked about it from a product liability standpoint, I got the vision, which is good. Well, let me ask you this. Um, is there any coordinated um, uh, advocacy piece? 
you know, I find sometimes, you know, uh, you really want to do for permanently, you're doing what you have to do now, but permanently what you want to do is hopefully plug up the hole. And there's a lot of battlegrounds and people that are already trying to get legislation passed to deal with so many of these issues. I'm wondering if there's any coordinated effort with people that may be already out there or something that you and your firm are trying to do to help plug up the holes from a legislation side for the future. Sure. So I, I think multiple answers. We have our own, and, and we, we are in this case with Ben Crump, who we all know and love very much, and all of his efforts. And then we have our own data privacy and technology practice here, uh, led by Amy Keller, where we have been steadily and David Strait going after these companies for accountability and building the foundation. As you've said, you know, I mean, there is no Brown versus Board of Ed without Plessy, right? There are no right. big cases right. that change without building a number of cases. So aside from our firm, other firms have been pushing this. This was kind of like an opiates when at first people were like, what the hell? Everybody takes pain pills, but everybody mm -hmm. should. And this is where we are. Everybody's on their device, but everybody shouldn't. And your children shouldn't be on the device for 10 hours. And, and a lot of these applications really should not exist. And so that's been happening legally. Um, really tremendous progressive plaintiff lawyers across the country saying, we must do something uh, because this isn't going anywhere. We saw this in the election, and this is not just our clients murdered, but clients across the country, folks radicalized online. And yes, I think there are a lot of consumer groups. I think it's um, the Social Media Center for Justice. There are a lot of nonprofit entities getting out there and educating people. Um, and I think there are a lot of legislative efforts, as we saw, there were congressional hearings. Um, for a lot of these companies, some of it has to do with privacy and the way that we're housing information, but a lot of it has to do with the addictive nature. And we saw the Surgeon General come out with a warning. So I think it's like tobacco. It's like opioids. We are just beginning to understand the absolute danger of these products and specifically as it relates to our communities and being targeted. This isn't just, you know, me as a mom, I have banned my eldest. I threw her iPad in the garbage. But, you know, it's, it's more than being pissed at your kids, right? This, hmm. this is creating and breeding tons of Ku Klux Klan to come after us through media and to gun down people in the middle of the day when they're in a supermarket shopping for their family. Dr. Larry Walker, assistant professor, University of Central Florida, your question. Yeah, thank you, Roland. Uh, it's fascinating to listen to your, your, in terms of your approach in, in this lawsuit. And we know that there are a number of protections already in place when it comes to um, gun manufacturers. But you mentioned the company that makes the uh, uh, vest. And, I, and I, I'm wondering, in terms of your approach, how do you think that's effective, right? So these, these they, they, okay, make the argument, we make these in general, because you mentioned the military and, and then obviously citizens purchasing them. The idea that certainly they say, well, argument, well, we just make these in general because obviously war is a problem throughout the world and we have to protect law enforcement. So in terms of the what you're describing, your theory, how do you think that you could reach a jury as it relates to that they make the point that, hey, we're trying to protect law enforcement, et cetera? And I think the question is, you're trying to protect law enforcement, but you sell it to a child. Um, and you sell it to a child who has some predilection and some issues. And these, some are just negligence theories, and you could look at some of our claims online. Um, and I don't think it's that simple. I think once we get into discovery and you look at who they're selling the armor to, this is not just to law enforcement. This is 
military, and, and so many of our community members stand on the line and protect our communities in the military. These, when you talk about the volume of sales, these are to young, white, angry, dangerous males who are being told that our communities are going to replace them. So I, I'm not God and I don't have a crystal ball, but I've been through a lot of discovery. And I have a great mm -hmm. sense that when we look at the marketing, when we look at their presence online, when we look at who they're selling to, that is not just going to be law enforcement and military officials. And as you know, a lot of law enforcement military officials get their protection through their employment. Sometimes they have it personally, but I think the discovery is going to bear out the real story about that company's responsibility in this situation. All right, DeAndre DeBose uh, Zimmerman, uh, DeBrosse Zimmerman, I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Keep us abreast of, the, of this uh, suit. Thank you, Rollo. All right, folks, going to go to a break. We come back. We'll talk with attorney Ben Crump about another case he's involved in. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. For decades, the tobacco industry has deliberately targeted black communities and kids with marketing for menthol cigarettes. It's had a devastating impact on black health. Tobacco use claims 45,000 black lives every year. It's the number one cause of preventable death. In the 1950s, less than 10% of black smokers used menthol cigarettes. Today, it's 85%. Menthol cools and numbs the throat, making it easier for kids to start smoking. Menthol also increases addiction, making it harder for smokers to quit. Menthol cigarettes are a big reason why black Americans have a harder time quitting smoking and die at higher rates from smoking-related diseases like cancer, heart disease, and stroke. It's time to stop big tobacco from profiting off black lives. An FDA ban on menthol cigarettes will improve black health, save lives, and protect future generations from addiction. Learn more at tobaccofreekids.org slash ban menthol. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Black Star Network is here. Oh, no punches! A real um, revolutionary right now. Uh, thank you for being the voice of Black America. All the momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? My name is Lena Charles, and I'm from Opelousas, Louisiana. Yes, 
That is Zotico capital of the world. My name is Margaret Chappelle. I'm from Dallas, Texas, representing the Urban Trivia Game. It's me, Sherry Shepard, and you know what you watch. Roland Martin on Unfiltered. The Department of Justice is opening a civil rights investigation into the conditions at the Fulton County, Georgia, jail. In April, we told you about 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson, who died in the jail in September, covered in insects and filth. After an extensive review of publicly available information, including reports about Thompson, the DOJ found significant justification to open this investigation. Joining me now is attorney Ben Crump, uh, who is representing uh, the Thompson family. Ben, glad to have you back uh, on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Um, this DOJ uh, investigation, Ben, uh, you know, how significant is this uh, for your clients? It's very significant, Roland Martin, in the fact that you have the federal government now shining a laser beam into the living conditions of citizens who are being detained at the uh, Fulton County Detention Center. Roland Martin, we must remember that these people are innocent. They are innocent until proven guilty. But yet, when you think about what LaShawn Thompson suffered, it was a death sentence. And why? Because he had a mental health crisis, and they turned it into a criminal issue, and he died one of the most horrible deaths a person could ever imagine, Roland Martin. He was literally eaten to death by lice and bed bugs. Uh, this is, and, and of course, after this happened, we then begin to hear other stories of individuals uh, who were impacted. And when you see these conditions, uh, how in the hell could jail officials ignore what they were looking at? You know, Roland, it's troubling in many ways, and we're so grateful to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland and especially uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney General Christian Clark, who uh, you know very well, who has been a champion for the civil rights of uh, marginalized people, especially black people. And using her platform, she is going to ask those direct questions. And I think what we're going to find, Roland Martin, is that this had a lot to do with politics. They were lobbying for a new Fulton County jail. That's been the sheriff. The county commissioners were saying we don't have the money for it. And so it was almost as if we're going to prove to you that it's cheaper to build a new jail than to have to pay these lawsuits that are going to result from the horrible conditions of the jail. I hope that's not the case, but that seems what is apparent to the community and many of the activists in Atlanta. So, um, have you heard from other families who've had folks in the Fulton County Jail? We have, Roland, and in fact, we've heard from other jail officials who have said that they are whistleblowers, too, that they've made several complaints. You know, you had NAFCARE, Attorney Michael Harper and I 
We talk about this case constantly as we uh, fight for justice on behalf of LaShawn's family. And NAFCARE was the uh, medical subcontractor that was supposed to provide medical services to the inmates. And what we found, Roland, was that NAVCARE was pointing the finger at the sheriff's department saying, we can't even get into the facility because it's so dangerous, it's so harmful to our employees. But then the sheriff's department was pointing the finger back at NAVCARE saying, hold on, you all are supposed to do routine assessments on a daily basis to make sure they're getting their medication and they're getting proper medical attention. But Roland Martin, we found in the medical records that LaShawn Thompson had not been seen for over 40 days. So that meant he did not get his uh, schizophrenia medicine. And so one of the big things that Dr. Roger Mitchell, who was the forensic, uh, head of forensics at Howard University said, the cause of death was a decompensated uh, uh, schizophrenia because people say, well, how can you just lay there and let bed bugs eat you to death? Well, he was severely mentally ill, and his brain was not functioning properly. So where you and I would move or wipe bugs off and everything, his brain was shutting down, telling him that he didn't even have the signals going to his body to say you should move. You're being eaten alive. And so when the bugs got in his mouth, got in his nose, got in his eyes, you know, it led to his uh, cardiac arrest that led to his death. And it's tragic. And this is happening more than just in Atlanta jails. Uh, absolutely. DOJ has investigated other jails as well. Uh, quickly, I want to go to my three panelists uh, to get questions from them. Joe, you first. Mr. Crump, it's a great pleasure to be on with you uh, for the first time. We've got a lot of mutual folks out here uh, working in the fight. I appreciate how you always get to hopefully be at the front, talk about what's going on in the case, um, wherever you are, but give us a little bit of insight as to where you would like it to end. Of course, we want justice for the family, but a lot of times the people that watch us don't see where we want it to go, how we want to deal with something systemic. So what's our wish list about how we want this to end? No, and that's a great question. I'm honored to be with you. And I know just like my brilliant co-counsel, attorney Fu Zimmerman, talked about what we hope to accomplish, we want to prevent this from happening to people in the future, especially uh, marginalized people of color who only crime is the color of their skin and the status of their mental health. And we want the DOJ to do a thorough investigation and have some criminal negligence held against these jailers. Because what I believe of people say my liberty is going to be at stake and not just paying a civil settlement that doesn't affect me at all, then I'm going to make sure that I blow that whistle and say, hey, we about to have another LaShawn Thompson in our jail. And so that's the hope that we can prevent this from happening. And that mental ill people can get proper treatment because I just said we all know people who are suffering from mental illness and they shouldn't be treated as criminals who are not this worthy of constitutional rights. Candace. 
Ben, you mentioned that there was a, a daily assessment that was supposed to take place. So that's on that level. But on the county level, on the state level, were there other assessments and check-ins that were supposed to happen that did not happen? Yeah, you know, not only was NAVCARE, the medical subcontractor, supposed to make sure he was being administered his medication and making sure that he was uh, medically um, safe from a fatality and other serious health problems. But the county jail has a non-delegable duty to make sure that the constitutional rights against unusual uh, punishment, cruel and unusual punishment, is respected. Nobody can say, when you look at LaShawn Thompson, that he didn't suffer cruel and unusual punishment and he hadn't been found guilty of anything. I keep emphasizing that because we have a tendency to say, well, they were in jail. They're not really worthy of our respect. Well, if you got loved ones in Atlanta and they get arrested in Fulton County, that's the jail they're going to. So be careful before you go to not give people the benefit of the doubt and consideration. Larry. Yeah, Mr. Crump, um, thank you for your advocacy. This is a really um, sad story, um, but important in terms of hold the area jurisdiction responsible. And I, my question is really deals with, you know, we talked about Fulton County, but is this a, a, a larger problem in the state of Georgia? And have you heard similar stories about other, um, you know, places where, where um, young men, young brothers and sisters in there are being held, where these same similar kind of concerns have been raised and not addressed? And Larry, it's not just an issue throughout the state of Georgia. It is an issue throughout the uh, United States of America. You know, in Mississippi, uh, the Parchman uh, prison that was deplorable. I know in Roland's uh, home county, uh, Harris County, Texas, there have been almost two individuals die per month in the jail, and you're scratching your head saying, this is terrible. You mean two people every month are going to die in the Harris County Jail in Houston, Texas? But that's what's happening, because we seem to not care about people who have been arrested, because we are quick to say, well, they're, they're criminals anyway, they're convicts. And regrettably, it is a disproportionate number of black people who are dying in that Harris County jail, just like it was a disproportionate number of black people who were suffering those atrocities in the Fulton County jail. So we have to say, but by the grace of God, that could be my family member, that could be my cousin, my niece, somebody could be arrested and put in the jail and then tragically and mysteriously end up suffering catastrophic or worse fatal injuries. So we got to do something about this jail. I tip my hat to Christian Clark for being on it, rolling. You know that sister when she was over Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. She have been, has been fighting the fight from day one for civil rights for all our people. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, ben, uh, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, thank you so very much. Hey, Roland, uh, yep. Roland, can I say thank you for what you're doing and speaking out about the atrocity that happened at Texas A&M. You know, brother, oftentimes people 
don't use their platform and you always use your platform. So I keep saying that privately and I want to say it publicly, Roland, God bless you for using your voice, man. I appreciate it. Well, there's no sense in having a platform if you don't use it. Uh, and especially in this day and age where we have far too few uh, black-owned news outlets. There's a whole lot of folks talking about entertainment and gossip and housewives and everything else. Uh, but we've got to have uh, strong news platforms that are speaking to our issues uh, because, again, it's, uh, it's way too many stories. We don't even have time to cover all of them. Uh, but uh, we've got to be able to do that because we're fighting a lot of folks who are against the advancement of black people. So, Ben, we appreciate it. Keep, keep up the fight out there, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks, brother. Folks, uh, got to go to a break. We come back. More on the Black Star Network, including the Department of Justice joining the NAACP's lawsuit against Mississippi for trying to create a separate legal system. Hey, folks, don't forget, we want you to support us in what we do. I stopped by the mailbox today, uh, and uh, li literally, these are, <laughs> these are all the folks who sent checks and money orders uh, and uh, over a, I think I haven't been to, I haven't been to the mailbox in, I think, three weeks. Uh, so I appreciate all of this. Uh, but, but let me be perfectly clear, you've heard me say this beforehand, uh, and it's no joke, okay? Our expenses are $195,000 a month. We're talking about studio, we're talking about staff, we're talking about, I mean, literally how we're live streaming uh, the show right now. That clear caster that's in there was almost $7,000. And we talk about our live streaming uh, gear with uh, L with, uh, with LiveU, uh, we've got two of the LU-800, those are $20,000 a piece. You throw in that rack unit in there, you're now talking about uh, another $45,000. Uh, when you go around and see all the things that are in here, when we travel, uh, the other shows, it it costs to pay show hosts, it costs to pay uh, staff, all of this uh, we do. And so uh, when you hear me say that we need 20,000 of our fans contributing on average of uh, 50 bucks each, uh, that's a million dollars. That doesn't pay for everything, but between the advertising that we do get from clients, between what we uh, generate from YouTube and what you give, it allows for us to pay the bills. At the end of the year, we don't have a lot of money that's left over. Uh, we did not get a lot of uh, political money in the last election. We'll see what happens in 2024. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, we are committed to this, and so your support is huge. And so send your check and money orders to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. That's the only Cash App that we have. Uh, PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollinsmartin.com, rolling at rollinmartinunfiltered.com. And of course, you can also download our app. That's critically important. We're close to 1.1 million subscribers on YouTube, uh, but we need folks downloading our app. We completely own it and control it. And so uh, you can download it onto your, to your Apple iPhone, your Android phone, your a Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. And don't forget to get your copy of my book, White Fear, How the Browning of America is Making White Folks Lose Their Minds. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. 
Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Because available at bookstores nationwide, Amazon, download your copy on Audible. Proceeds of the book go right back into the show. We'll be right back. My early days on the road, I've learned, well, first of all, as a musician, uh, I studied not only uh, piano, but I was also drummer and percussion. I was all city percussion as well. So I was one of the best in the city on percussion. There you go. Also studied uh, trumpet, uh, cello, violin, and bass, and any other instrument I could get my hand mm -hmm. on. And, and, and with that study, I learned again what was for me. I learned to what, what it meant to do, what the instruments in the orchestra meant to each other in the relationships. Right. So that prepared me to be a leader. That prepared me to lead orchestras and to conduct orchestras. That prepared me to know, uh, to be a leader of men, they have to respect you and know that you know the music. You have to be the teacher of the music. You have to know the music better than anybody. There you go. Right, so you can't walk in unprepared. Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene. A white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence. White people are losing their damn minds. As an angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. Capitol, we're about to see the rise of what I call white minority resistance. We have seen white folks in this country who simply cannot tolerate black folks voting. I think what we're seeing is the inevitable result of violent denial. This is part of American history. Every time that people of color have made progress, whether real or symbolic, there has been what Carol Anderson at Emory University calls white rage as a backlash. This is the rise of the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys. America, there's going to be more of this. Here's all the Proud Boys, guys. This country is getting increasingly racist in its behaviors and its attitudes because of the fear of white people. The fear that they're taking our jobs, they're taking our resources, they're taking our women. This is white fear. It's John Murray, the executive producer of the new Sherry Shepard Talk Show. You're watching Roland Mark Unfiltered. The DOJ has filed a joint the NAACP's lawsuit against Mississippi's governor and other officials over a new law that expands the jurisdiction of the state-run Capitol Police in Jackson, Mississippi creating a temporary court within the Capitol Complex Improvement District that covers a portion of Jackson. Now, the NAACP says the law will create separate and unequal policing in the majority black capital and violate the principle of self-government by taking control of the police and some courts out of the hands of residents, and the residents still got to pay for it. The law allows people convicted in the Capitol Complex Improvement District Court to be put in a state prison rather than in a city or county jail. And the judge of the new court is not required to live in Jackson and will be appointed by the Mississippi Supreme Court Chief Justice. U.S. District Judge Henry Wingate 
temporarily block the law from taking effect, he must approve the Justice Department's request to intervene in the lawsuit. This right here, uh, Candace, I, I, I think is critically important because, again, what this is are largely white Republicans who want to dictate what happens in this majority black city. And then they got control, but the taxpayers of Jackson got to pay for it and have no say-so over something that they're paying for. <laughs> yeah, Roland, you're correct. No say-so. They're paying for it. Um, and you have a situation where there hasn't been, what, a, a black state representative since Reconstruction. So we're dealing with white people who are in power who need to take care of crime, who need to take care of the water issue, who need to take care of so many systemic issues that have been going on there for so long. So what this does is it creates two systems that are separate. That is really interesting because the way that it functions already, their systems are already separate in terms of how black people are treated in the courts, especially in Mississippi. So I see this as something that we've already seen, but something that is, is kind of specific now uh, and clear that they want to happen before it's kind of buried. We have two systems if you go into the Mississippi court system. Now they are literally saying, we just want two systems, one that is going to benefit us more and, and one that is not going to benefit blacks. So it's not any different than what we've been going, that what we've been seeing and what's been going on, but it's something that is strange because they're clearly saying, let's separate ourselves out. It, it's ridiculous. You know, Larry, when I look at what they've done here, uh, it, it was crazy. And when I, and we had numerous legislators on the show, and I've asked them all the same question. Where's the data to back it up? They say nothing was provided. Nothing. So, Roland, it's interesting that we look at the percentage of, of blacks to live in the state of Mississippi. But, we're, you, you know, in the show, we talk about a lot of these issues, particularly like Mississippi itself. And this particular case, I mean, it, it makes no sense, but it, it seems like they're trying to push the clock back, as my colleague kind of referred to, <laughs> to the Jim Crow era. You have all these black people, not only obviously in Jackson, but overall in the state. But those who are making these decisions don't look like members of Jackson. And you highlighted that, you know, obviously the... Um, Supreme Court, just Supreme, the state Supreme Court doesn't have to, individual doesn't make decisions, doesn't have to live in the area. And it is an unequal and unfair system. But once again, this is another example of what we see consistently, not only in the state of Mississippi, once again, my colleague highlighted the issues relating to um, access to clean water, which is a basic human right. But in addition to that challenge, and not, you know, not taking the steps to address this issue, but also in terms of undermining members of the Jackson community to have a system in place, a fair system in place, by those who are elected by members of the community, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And like I said, it's inconsistent with the idea of fairness and justice in America. Joe? Yeah, ditto on all that. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's nice, you know, to, to think of it this way. Well, you know, when I like what's going on, um, you know, I'll kind of let it go. And when I don't like what's going on, I'll come in and take it over. So I believe in local control uh, when I am in control of the locality. When I'm not in control of the locality, now I want to put the state in, in now I want to put the state which is very, very white in charge. Jackson, Mississippi is a black city. That means that the people that are elected there, uh, the judges, the representatives, uh, the DA, 
folks would have, those would be the people making those decisions. And so this effectively, not inconsistent with what's going on in a lot of different places in the country, one of the places, one of the ways to deal with when you have a state legislature, but you don't have the urban cities and you effectively want to take them over, is to just change a law that, you know, you can get passed because you've got a Republican governor or you've got a supermajority in the legislature. And so we will just take it over. So we don't believe in local control anymore. So basically, Jackson, Mississippi and any anywhere else black USA can be the next Washington, D.C., where there's basically taxation without representation. All right, folks, hold tight one second. We come back. Uh, the federal government uh, launched an investigation, a different department, into Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. This is why I keep trying to explain to y'all why voting matters, who you put in office that controls power, then dictates how power is used. We'll tell you about that investigation next. Again, folks, support us in what we do. Uh, let me do this here. Let me shout out uh, before I uh, put it up. Uh, let me shout out Val Bradshear. Val, thanks a lot. Uh, let me shout out to here. Give me a second. Uh, Malcolm Brown. La Iglesia de Jesus Batista Jesus. Appreciate uh, that your support for the show. Uh, William Turner. Let me also thank Samantha May Pagui. Uh, let's see here. Robin Thames. Thanks a lot, Robin. Let's see here. Let me go. Uh, Tamika Thomas. Roderick. Uh, Varda. Larnell Farmer. Uh, let's see here. Um, Donald White. Thanks a bunch uh, for your support as well. Um, give me a second. I'm going to... Uh, Let's see who else here. Okay. Uh, Kathy Collins, Willie Howard Rogers, Nate Roy, uh, Bernard uh, Chujin, Anita Parham, Manu, Manu Platt, uh, Tanya Denise Welch, Florence Delaney, uh, Kimberly Crutchfield, Vivian Minter, Trevor Brockman, Terrell Foster, Angela Terry. I want to thank all of y'all for giving to the show. Uh, please join our Bring the Funk fan club. See, check in money order to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash app, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal, or Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zell, rolling at rollinsmartin.com. Rolling at rollinsmartinunfiltered.com. Uh, and be sure to get a copy of my book, White Fear, How the Brownie of America is Making White Folks Lose Their Minds. If you're on YouTube, y'all, hit the like button. We should easily be able to 1,000 likes by now, okay? So when I come back, it's 621 right now. When I come back from this break, we should have uh, the additional uh, 389 folks, uh, 379 folks uh, who are joining us. And so hit the like button, y'all. I'll be right back. I'm rolling my info. When you talk about blackness. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights. Speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward, don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. And what happens in black culture we're about covering these things that matter to us, uh, speaking to our issues and concerns. This is a genuine people-powered movement. There's a lot of stuff that we're not getting. You get it, and you spread the word. We wish to plead our own cause 
to long have others spoken for us. We cannot tell our own story if we can't pay for it. This is about uh, covering us. Invest in black-owned media. Your dollars matter. We don't have to keep asking them to cover our stuff. So please support us in what we do, folks. We want to hit 2,000 people, $50 this month, raise $100,000. We're behind 100000 so we want to hit that. Y'all money makes this possible. Check some money orders. Go to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. The cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Coming up next on The Frequency, right here on the Black Star Network, Shanita Hubbard. We're talking about the ride or die chick. We're breaking it down. The stereotype of the strong black woman. Some of us are operating with it as if it's a badge of honor. Like you even hear black women like aspiring to be this ride or die chick, aspiring to be this strong black woman show at their own expense. Next on The Frequency, right here on the Black Star Network. Me, Sherry Shepard. I'm Sammy Roman. I'm Dr. Robin B., pharmacist and fitness coach, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Department of Health and Human Services launches a federal investigation into Cedars-Sinai Medical Center's treatment of black women who give birth. The LA Times reports the investigation is linked to allegations of racism and discrimination the hospital faced following the death of Judge Linda Hatchett's daughter-in-law, Kira Dixon Johnson, seven years ago. She died from internal bleeding following a C-section at Cedars-Sinai. The federal investigation comes after Kira's husband, Charles Johnson IV filed a civil rights lawsuit in May of 2022 against the hospital. The lawsuit alleges Johnson's civil rights were violated and she was denied health care because of race, which resulted in her untimely and wrongful death. 
Uh, also, you may have seen this story where a Yale professor wants doctors to wear a body camera after she witnessed uh, doctors literally laughing at a black victim who had been shot. When you start looking at these stories, Joe, you're there in L.A., I mean, we're talking about how black people are being degraded and mistreated uh, by hospitals, and they should be treating people equally, but we're seeing what's going on, and they're not. You have some hope, Roland, that as it pertains to certain institutions, ones that are supposed to help people that see all kinds of people, schools, uh, hospitals, et cetera. You're hoping that you have people that have the empathy and the heart to actually, um, you know, uh, deal with the situations with the proper sensitivity, but also do everything that they can for you on your behalf. If they devalue people in that regard, and the facts will show, the statistics will show, the data will show that care for black folks and white folks with the same medical problems will vary. If there is less care as it pertains to less sensitivity, then there's going to be less quality of care. And that's in L.A. In L.A. They got black folks there all the time. They got black folks in Hollywood at Cedar sinai going there all the time. But at the end of the day, the problem becomes when you don't value certain lives, that is going to show up in the work that you do. And that's why this is so dangerous. Uh, and, and that really is the case here, Candace. Uh, and it happens repeatedly. Um, and, and this is where, why we're always trying to explain to people uh, that forget all this other BS you hear. The reality is black folks still have to catch hell. We mm. still have to do more just to live like everybody else. And the Department of Health and Human Services, this is nothing new. They have had these reports that have talked about these preventable deaths that happen by the tens of thousands every year because of racism. And and we're talking about racism and also other socioeconomic factors. And then you have, uh, you know, gender factors and age factors and all of that is that they create all of these intersectionalities when someone goes into the hospital. And what happened in this situation was that there was too much blood in her system that could have been prevented, and her husband had to fight. And I'm sure that we have all found ourselves in that situation. And I think the key takeaway from this is, like everything else that we have to do in this country, you have to come in there and not only show people that you are a good advocate for yourself, but I know when I go to the hospital and are dealing with loved ones, you have to bring in outside people and let them know that it's not just me who might be in mourning, but someone who was on their P's and Q's, who has the wherewithal to question, to ask you what you're doing, to ask if there's a black doctor, to ask for a second opinion. You have to be really, really bold. And that happens often in the times in the middle of grief and mourning and when you're really, really out of your element. But it is a practice that we have to begin or continue that when you go to the hospital, you have to advocate. You have to advocate hard and you have to advocate loudly. It doesn't matter how you might how it might seem on the other end, it's going to be worth it if it ultimately prevents the death. Um, and that's the thing, Larry, you have to be your greatest advocate. You simply can't assume. And we tell the story all the time when Serena Williams was having a child, I mean, she had to basically knock the hell out of these damn doctors and say, hey, I'm having issues. So let's, let's, Roland, let's talk about some, you know, some facts. According to CDC, black women are three, more, three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related deaths than white women. 
In addition to that, there are a number of studies that highlight that physicians believe that black people have a higher tolerance to pain. Uh, to pain. So among all the other issues we have to deal with in terms of being black in America, as my colleague mentioned earlier, hospitals are institutions you want to have faith in because when you go there, there's something, something, there's something wrong and you need support. But these issue, this issue related to the black women and pregnancy-related deaths, is this, this is something unsolvable, Roland. All this is rooted in structural racism. And I think the key point is when we talk about, you talk about these topics on your show, particularly this topic, Black women are more likely to have these pregnancy-related deaths compared to white women, regardless of their socioeconomic status. So, you know, well-educated black women with health insurance compared to a white woman who doesn't have a job and, and doesn't have any health insurance, that black woman has a higher rate of uh, a mortality rate when it comes to pregnancy. So these are issues, once again, that are solvable. We need to have more black physicians. And once again, we have to make sure we have the uh, physicians have the training to recognize their own bias to ensure we protect the lives of black women. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, folks, um, when we uh, come back, we will uh, talk about a number of different other stories, and that is, uh, one, the case out of Indiana where uh, a black man uh, was tased and died as a result. Uh, we also have uh, efforts to uh, expand, if you will, uh, more lawyers into the profession. We'll talk about uh, what's happening now. The Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, they are involved in the effort as well, fighting uh, misconduct. Uh, plus, um, What's happening at Texas A&M with uh, a black journalism professor uh, where they changed the offer multiple times, uh, that is leading to other people who are saying, I don't want to go to these schools. We've seen the exact same thing in Florida. This is going to have, these actions are going to have a chilling effect on black professionals, black faculty. We will talk about that on the show as well. You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Back in a moment. The next Get Wealthy with me, Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach. The wealth gap has literally not changed in over 50 years, according to the Federal Reserve. On the next Get Wealthy, I'm excited to chat with Jim Castleberry, CEO of Known Holdings. They have created a platform, an ecosystem to bring resources to Blacks and people of color so they can scale their business. Even though we've had several examples of um, African-Americans and other people of color being able to be successful, we still aren't seeing the mass level of us being lifted up. That's right here on Get Wealthy, only on Black Star Network. On a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, we're going to be talking about common sense. We think that people have it, know how to use it, but it is something that people often have to learn. The truth is most of us are not born with it, and we need to teach common sense, embrace it, and give it to those who need it most, our kids. So I always tell teachers to listen out to what conversations the students are having about what they're getting from social media. And then let's get ahead of it and have the appropriate conversations with them. On a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, here at Black Star Network. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. 
When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Next, on The Black Table with me, Greg Carr. We featured the brand new work of Professor Angie Porter, which, simply put, is a revolutionary reframing of the African experience in this country. It's the one legal article everyone, and I mean everyone, should read. Professor Porter and Dr. Valethea Watkins, our legal roundtable team, join us to explore the paper that I guarantee is going to prompt a major aha moment in our culture. You crystallize it by saying, who are we to other people? Who are African people to others? Governance is our thing. Who are we to each other? The structures we create for ourselves, how we order the universe as African people. That's next on The Black Table, here on the Black Star Network. I'm Faraji Muhammad, live from LA. And this is The Culture. The Culture is a two-way conversation. You and me, we talk about the stories, politics, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. So join our community every day at 3 p.m. Eastern and let your voice be heard. Hey, we're all in this together, so let's talk about it and see what kind of trouble we can get into. It's The Culture, weekdays at 3, only on the Black Star Network. Black Star Network is here. Oh, no punches! I'm real um, revolutionary right now. Uh, thank you for being the voice of Black America. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence. White people are losing their damn minds. As an angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. Capitol, we're about to see the rise of what I call white minority resistance. We have seen white folks in this country who simply cannot tolerate black folks voting. I think what we're seeing is the inevitable result of violent denial. This is part of American history. Every time that people of color have made progress, whether real or symbolic, there has been what Carol Anderson at Emory University calls white rage as a backlash. This is the rise of the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys. America, there's going to be more of this. Here's all the Proud Boys, guys. This country is getting increasingly racist in its behaviors and its attitudes because of the fear of white people. The fear that they're taking our jobs, they're taking our resources, they're taking our women. This is white fear. I am Tommy Davidson. I play Oscar on Proud Family, Louder and Prouder. Right now, I'm rolling with Roland Martin. Unfiltered, uncut, unplugged, and undamn believable. You hear me? On April 25th, 2022, Herman Whitfield III was experiencing a mental health crisis 
at his parents' home. His mother Gladys called for an ambulance, but instead of medical assistance, six Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department officers showed up. The officers did not help Herman at all. They eventually tased him, double handcuffed him in the prone position, ignored his pleas that he could not breathe, kept him face down for about five minutes until he's, his body went motionless on his parents' living room floor. The autopsy determined Whitfield died from heart failure while under law enforcement restraint and ruled the death a homicide. Two of those officers, Adam Ahmad and Stephen Sanchez, have both been indicted for Herman's death. The two-faced involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, and felony and misdemeanor battery charges. The trial is scheduled for July of next year. Whitfield's family has filed a civil lawsuit against the city of Indianapolis and six officers. Joining me from Indianapolis are Herman's parents, Gladys and Herman Whitfield Jr. Their attorneys, Israel Nunez, Cruz, and Richard Wapples. Here with me in the studio is D. Lott, the lead coordinator for the Justice for Herman Whitfield III campaign. Um, glad to have you uh, on the show, Gladys and Herman. Again, uh, sorry for uh, the loss of your son. This is something that we've covered on numerous occasions on this show, where so many parents are scared to death of literally calling authorities because what ended, ha what ended up happening to your son could ha has happened before. Um, what I'm trying to understand is you call for an ambulance. Why did cops come? We don't, we don't understand, we don't know why. Yeah, we don't know why. Uh, we didn't ask for them, but I thought since they were here, they had the civility and the humanities to help us, and it just turned out to be bad. I don't know why they came. Israel and uh, Richard, uh, are there 911 calls? Has the city explained why an ambulance was, wasn't dispatched and instead six cops showed up? This is Richard, and the uh, there was an ambulance that came that was outside that the police did not allow to come in until they had the situation, as they said, under control. Herman was confused and um, in a mental health crisis, like you said, he needed help. And um, the, the officers initially talked to him and tried to get him to to come outside, get dressed and come outside, and and he apparently didn't understand them and, and wasn't making any sense. And the officer's training is to wait in that situation, not confront somebody, not to get physically aggressive with them. And instead of following their training, they did exactly the opposite. They forced the situation, they got up on him, and then they, um, when he ran from them, then they used a taser to get him down and got on top of him. And their training says, it's very dangerous, especially for a large individual to be down on his stomach in a prone position, especially with his hands cuffed behind his back and with weight on him. Um, and that's exactly the position he was in. And Herman, and there's video from the officer's body cams on this, says he couldn't breathe at least three or more times. And the officers didn't follow their training to get him up in a, in a position where he could breathe. And instead, he just went limp, and they just left him there um, in a tragic situation. And uh, the city's policies actually aren't all that bad with respect to how they are to respond to this sort of situation. 
um, but they didn't follow them, the officers on the scene. And then the city of Indianapolis um, hasn't been honest with respect to how they dealt with the situation. They've attempted to cover it up. They produced a videotape that was left out the part that Herman was saying he couldn't breathe, made it appear that he was the aggressor when he wasn't. Herman never verbally threatened the officers, never physically threatened the officers. He just tried to get away from them. And um, they were the ones that were the aggressors. They were the ones that used the only physical force that was used that day. Israel, was there a supervisor on the scene? We, we've, again, we've had other stories before where you typically would have a senior officer who is commander of the scene. Um, anything along those lines? I think there was a sergeant on the scene. Israel, do you recollect the... Uh, Rich, you're right. I think that there was a, a sergeant on scene, and there are multiple officers on scene initially, and then more came uh, before the ambulance made its way into the house. So there was a supervisor uh, that was uh, supervising what was going on uh, with the officers inside the home. Um, you, you say, Richard, that a, uh, a videotape was made by the city that was deceptive. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, for, Gloria, for Gladys and Herman, uh, did, did you, first of all, did you shoot any video yourself? Uh, were there any body cam footage that shows beginning to end what took place? Gladys and Herman first. Oh, we, no, we did not. Uh, film anything. We didn't have any devices in our hand filming mm -hmm. anything. Um, and uh, what was your other question? Uh, the the video that uh, the city released was compilation, like a compilation of bits and pieces mm -hmm. of uh, body cam, police officer uh, body cam videos, I guess, as the city saw fit to piece it together and omitting very important outcome determinative pieces of video. So have y'all been have y'all been shown the full body cam video from beginning to end? Well, we saw pieces of it. We we really couldn't look at it because it was really kind of gruesome and inhumane, so we really couldn't I really couldn't look at it, and I don't think Terry could either. But uh, but our um, uh, it's, it's my understanding that our attorneys have looked at the all of the video, video camera vid, uh, footage. Richard, is, is was that the case? Yeah, yes. that is the case. In fact, we sought in discovery the body cam videos, the complete body cam videos, not just the compilation video that the city put together, and they resisted that. We actually had to go to court and and with a motion to compel and get the court or to order them to produce all of the body cam videos. And when they did, um, it told more of the story about exactly what happened. And it was after that point, and then we released a compilation of those body cam that honestly uh, set forth what happened that day and who did what, which one of the officers did what, and, and how they brutalized Herman and caused his death. Um, and it was after that part, that point that the Prosecutor then brought charges um, against two of the officers, the officers that the officer that tased him, Sanchez, and Ahmad, who was uh, on top of Herman. Uh, Ms. Lott, how how has this? First of all, how did you come to get involved in this case as the lead coordinator of the 
the Justice for Herman campaign? Um, well, I'm, I am a friend of was a, her, a friend of Herman Whitfield III as well as his family. So mm -hmm. I'm a family friend, mm -hmm. um, an attorney who has experience in doing campaign organizing on other issues. And so um, when this happened, um, you know, of course, went through a, gr a period of grieving. But, you know, very shortly after that, it became a conversation of, OK, what, what do we want to do now, what, especially once we saw that the city was misconstruing and obfuscating facts and things like that. And so we wanted to make sure that the truth was out. Um, you know, we, we started out first with just putting up a website, did a, a community memorial call to action for the local community there. And from there, for the last year and two, three months, this is what we've been working on and, and steadily trying to, you know, recruit people, get the word out, um, get a base of volunteers kind of provide um, some support and encouragement to the community because this is this is one of many in a long, long history of, you know, vigilante mob lynchings and things like that that have happened in Indiana. And it's 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 really something that I think continues like that legacy and, and that 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 community wide statewide trauma is something that continues in that community. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of of of, you know, belief that nothing is ever going to change there. And so we thought it was very important to start, you know, making sure that we got both, you know, local local attention to it, local support, as well as national support to let that community there know that, you know, there are people who are, there's a network of people, there's a nation of people, there's a world of people who will pay attention to what's happening in happening in Indiana and who care about Herman and who care just in generally. And so that was one of the reasons why we started to engage, but also to make sure that the public knew what the government, what the mayor what the police are, are doing there. Mm -hmm. we, we just want it out. One of the, the most concerning things right now um, that we that as a campaign we're worried about, as a community we're worried about, is the fact that these two indicted officers are still employed by the police department. The mayor, to my understanding, everything I've seen and heard has never come out and said that he would stand for justice, that he wants to see justice served in this instance. There has not been any comment or any uh, any request for a DOJ investigation, which is something that we've repeatedly asked for from the very beginning. It needs to happen not only for this case, but for the long history of this in Indianapolis and Indiana as a whole. And so we have a lot of concerns about what the mayor is not doing there and, and the efforts to cover this up and to hide this um, from, from the community there locally and from the national community. And so I thank you so much for bringing us on and helping us get the word out about this and so that we can ask for the national support that we need, not only there in Indianapolis and in Indiana, but so that we can start to unite nationwide, mm -hmm. so that we start to have a more coordinated response to these so that there is at least some hope that this will stop right. and we can start to reform this. Richard Israel, this happened April 25th, 2022. The trial is until July 2024? Right. So the uh, Charles actually just got continued, and it's actually going to be set for, it is set for January 24th of 2024. Oh, January, January 2024, not July. Correct. Got it. Um, now, having, having said that, it wouldn't surprise me if it got moved again. I think for this type of case, um, it's probably going to take a good year uh, maybe a year and a half from the time that it was filed, because there, there's just going to be delays. Um, like many other states and other jurisdictions, you know, we have a backlog um, because of COVID. And so, I, again, it wouldn't surprise me if it got moved one more time. But having, you know, the prosecutor um, 
Ryan Mears is, is, is moving this case forward. Um, as far as I can remember, I think this is the first time two police officers have been indicted uh, for these types of, of charges. Um, so we are very pleased with the prosecutor uh, for doing what is right. And I think that he's, he's going to move this case as quickly as possible. But the defense is going to do everything they can, of course, to put in as many roadblocks as they can before this case goes to trial. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, uh, it is um, always difficult when we have to um, you know, talk about uh, these cases. We've talked to so many different uh, family members um, in similar circumstances. Uh, and uh, again, it is it, it has to be heart wrenching again when you seek assistance and help uh, for a son, for a daughter, for a loved one. Uh, and then you think that you're calling the people who are there, supposedly there, to protect and serve, and then they end up being the aggressors and taking someone's life. And so, Gladys and Herman, uh, we thank you uh, for sharing with us uh, your story. Uh, Israel, Richard, thank you so very much as well. Uh, Dear lot, thanks a bunch. Uh, please uh, let us know uh, what uh, happens next uh, in this case uh, for Herman Whitfield III. So much. We, 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 we want to thank you again, like Dad said, for having us on your show, uh, because we are we don't feel like we're getting the local support that we should be getting, especially uh, from the clergy uh, here in Indianapolis. We're not sure why. Uh, as Dad's mentioned, the mayor um, has not stepped up. Uh, the chief, police chief have not stepped up. Many other jurisdictions have fired officers in similar circumstances. But yet, under these circumstances, in this case, um, the police officers continue to, uh, one, uh, be on administrative leave, but two, they're continuing to be paid, and there is no movement whatsoever uh, to fire them. Uh, folks, put back up the, uh, the social media information uh, to follow this, folks. Uh, again, you can go to Facebook, the Justice for Herman Whitfield III page. On Instagram, is Justice, the number four, Herman III, 3RD. You also have uh, the YouTube channel, Justice for Herman Whitfield III campaign. Uh, so again, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If I could just make one ask mm -hmm. that people engage with us so that we can start to work together to have a coordinated response in this, like with all the families so that we can start doing something. The, the Fraternal Order of Police is organized. They're talking to each other. We need to start doing that ourselves so that we can, we can, we can start moving this in the direction that we want it to go in. Politicians right. aren't going to do it. We have to save us. All right. We appreciate it. Thanks Thank a bunch. You. Uh, folks, got to go to break. We come back. Our Black and Missing uh, for the day. In addition, we'll talk about black faculty under attack by white conservatives who keep advancing their attacks against DEI. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. When you talk about blackness and what happens in black culture, 
We're about covering these things that matter to us, uh, speaking to our issues and concerns. This is a genuine people-powered movement. There's a lot of stuff that we're not getting. You get it, and you spread the word. We wish to plead our own cause too long have others spoken for us. We cannot tell our own story if we can't pay for it. This is about uh, covering us. Invest in Black-owned media. Your dollars matter. We don't have to keep asking them to cover our stuff. So please, support us in what we do, folks. We want to hit 2,000 people, $50 this month, raise $100,000. We're behind 100000 so we want to hit that. Y'all money makes this possible. Check some money orders. Go to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037- 0196. The cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Coming up next on the frequency right here on the Black Star Network, Shanita Hubbard. We're talking about the ride or die chick. We're breaking it down. The stereotype of the strong black woman. Some of us are operating with it as if it's a badge of honor. Like you even hear black women like aspiring to be this ride or die chick, aspiring to be this strong black woman at their own expense. Next on The Frequency, right here on the Black Star Network. Farquhar, executive producer of Proud Family. Bruce Smith, creator and executive producer of The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder. And you're watching Roland Martin. Shepard. Brazion Shepard has been missing from uh, Levine, Arizona since May 23rd. The 17-year-old is 5 feet 10 inches tall, weighs 180 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. Anyone with information uh, about Brazion Shepard should call the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department at 602-262-6151, 602-262-6151. Folks, uh, the first Minneapolis, Minnesota police officer to plead guilty to vehicular manslaughter finds out how much time he will spend behind bars. Brian Cummings will spend approximately nine months in jail after pleading guilty to criminal vehicular homicide for a deadly crash during a police pursuit that killed Laniel Frazier. This took place on July 6, 2021, when Cummings was pursuing a stolen vehicle for about 20 blocks, reaching speeds up to 90 miles an hour. Cummings ran a red light at 78 miles per hour, slamming into Frazier's Jeep. Cummings faced charges of second-degree manslaughter and criminal vehicular homicide, which usually carries a four-year prison term. Despite the severity of the incident, the judge sentenced Cummings to 270 days in the county jail because he pleaded guilty and showed remorse for his actions. I, I, Candace, 270 days in jail just because he showed remorse? He literally violated department policy with this high-speed chase and killed somebody. Indeed, Roland. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this case is that it's a repeat of the cases that we have seen over the past years. Um, and this is why we need oversight of systems like this. This is someone who actually killed someone, as you said. People um, who kill people 
If you are a black man and you're going through this process, you are going to get more time. And so I'm not surprised by the outcome of this case, but I am surprised at the lack of oversight uh, of this type of case and the attention that is, is not getting um, uh, unless it is people like you. It just It's just crazy to me, Larry, when we see these stories and how this system absolutely protects cops. Well, and this is this is a story you could just plus, you know, rewind and play. <laughs> you know, every we talk about this all the time on your show. And it, it's it's tragic because what it also does is undermines the, the faith that the community has in the judicial system. And we already know that uh, black folks are more likely to receive higher sentences for similar um, cases. And also, we obviously today talked about the treatment, if, if, if particularly black folks are, are in prison. But this particular case is clear, like you talked about, not doing something that costs someone their life and inconsistent with policies and procedures and only getting nine months, it, it really is a slap in the face and, and the family and the local community. And we have to do a better job, particularly the judicial system, has to do a better job of holding law enforcement responsible for committing crimes just like they treat everyday citizens. Joe? You know, law enforcement gets a lot of deference, and this is something that reminds you that it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a liberal city. It doesn't matter whether you, versus a conservative city. Oh, liberal city, better cops. Not necessarily. Or less deference, more understanding when someone has a life loss. So basically what they're saying is that life is just worth 270 days. Now, I don't know how long he was in jail, but he either was in jail for some period of time and he's got time served or close to it, which I don't think happened, or he was able to get out right away to begin with, right? And I will give you 10 to 1, he'll be lucky to do 100 days of this. He'll do half of it, uh, right about half of it at the very, very most. And so, you know, we have to continue uh, to, uh, to, to sound the horn here, uh, the whole idea that when someone does something, when they break their own policy, as a plaintiff's attorney, I, I look for a defendant, employer, a police department that, that breaks their own policy. This is what you said you were supposed to do, and you don't do it, and he effectively gets a slap on the wrist. Uh, yeah, just absolutely crazy. Two Georgia election workers demand severe sanctions and an outright victory in their defamation case against Rudy Giuliani after he failed to produce communications related for, for, to Donald Trump's 2020 election fraud claims. Mother and daughter Atlanta poll workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are asking U.S. District Court Judge Beryl Howell to grant a default judgment in favor of their case because Giuliani failed to turn over the requested exchanges between himself and Trump advisor Boris Epstein. Freeman and Moss have been subjected to relentless attacks since 2020, when Giuliani and Trump cited them sometimes by name to fuel their since-debunked mm. election fraud claims. The poll workers seek an unspecified amount in damages, claiming Giuliani's actions caused severe emotional distress and put them in danger. I hope these thugs, Larry, get everything that they deserve. Make sure he loses it all. This is, speaks to, the, I think, the country's history in terms of black folks, particularly the work black women do to protect, to protect democracy, and this is the outcome. And I know over years ago, some folks returned, referred to Julian as America's mayor, but we know that wasn't the case when it came to black folks and, and fairness and, and when it comes to police department, police department. But this is ridiculous, and once again, all these lies he told leading up to the election and after the election, we have to hold him accountable to losing his law license, making him pay, uh, pay these uh, um, black women the money they deserve for, uh, you know, the humiliation and the constant attacks 
that it certainly had to have a, an impact on their well-being. Uh, and, and they were constantly attacked and demoralized, Candace. They were. And one thing that Giuliani and his attorneys understand is that procedurally, they have to turn over evidence, evidence that works for them and evidence that works against them. They don't have to hand it on a silver platter. It could be buried, but they have to turn over the evidence. That's what all attorneys know, all attorneys understand. And if they don't do it, then they are subject to being, um, to get in trouble for it and have some violation of the court and its procedures. So he knows this. His attorneys are saying that this is burdensome, that you are asking us for evidence. That's how court, the court system works. You have his story, you know, the prosecutor's story, the defense story, and somewhere in there you have the third story, and that's the truth. And in order to prove whatever truth there is, you need evidence. So it makes no sense that someone who's barred, Ruli Giuliani, as well as his attorneys who are barred, would act like this is the first time that they heard they have to turn over evidence. This is par for the course, this is basic, and this is something that goes well against what they call the Brady Rule. You have to turn over the evidence in order to have a fair trial. Joe? You know, it's amazing. You know, somebody brings a case, the other side answers the case, and so now the case is at issue and you're walking together. Um, it, it, it takes a whole lot to, to have enough of a sanction where, potentially speaking, you could be defaulted because you were so egregious in your failure to do what you were supposed to do that the court is looking at giving you the ultimate penalty. I know that that's what these parties are asking for. I don't know quite where they are with it, but they're basically getting ready to be in a place where they are dancing by themselves without Giuliani there because you have to do a lot, actually, to get these ultimate sanctions, but he's staring at them. He has to provide uh, this evidence. Like was said, he can bury it, but he has to provide it. But, you know, uh, if you don't want to provide good news, that's where you are. You know what I mean? And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I hope he's penalized as much as he can be because he doesn't get an officer of the court, by the way, and his attorneys are officers of the court. And they're not supposed to be able to skip the law just because they want us to remember how things were the day after 9 11 and he was popular. Um, well, uh, absolutely. All right, folks, gotta go to a break. We come back. We're going to talk about the dangers of menthol cigarettes and how they target black communities. And also, did a white Republican? Just mention colored people on the floor of the house. I'm going to play this video when we come back. And why is a white woman going off on Muslims? But wait until I show you how the white train conductor got in her ass. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. On the next Get Wealthy with me, Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, the wealth gap has literally not changed in over 50 years, according to the Federal Reserve. On the next Get Wealthy, I'm excited to chat with Jim Castleberry, CEO of Known Holdings. They have created a platform, an ecosystem to bring resources to Blacks and people of color so they can scale their business. Even though we've had several examples of um, African-Americans and other people of color being able to be successful, we still aren't seeing the mass level of us being lifted up. That's right here on Get Wealthy, only on Black Star Network. On a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, we're going to be talking about common sense. We think that people have it. 
know how to use it, but it is something that people often have to learn. The truth is most of us are not born with it and we need to teach common sense, embrace it and give it to those who need it most, our kids. So I always tell the teachers to listen out to what conversations the students are having about what they're getting from social media and then let's get ahead of it. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. And have the appropriate conversations with them on a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, here at Black Star Network. I'm Joe Marie Payton, voice of Sugar Mama on Disney's Louder and Prouder Disney Plus, and I'm with Roland Martin on Unfiltered. this text message from Congresswoman Joyce Beatty uh, and something happened today on the House floor that's nuts. Um, Republican Congressman Eli Crane was speaking and they, they voted today on this uh, House defense bill where the Republicans want to strip uh, abortion funding and some other stuff you know, from the bill. They're in a culture wars crap. Uh, so this literally happened, y'all, today on the floor of the House, uh, and this is what you had a white Republican, a black female Democrat, watch this exchange. Arizona. Well, Mr. Chairman, though, that was unbelievably inspiring. My amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve, okay? It has nothing to do with color of skin, your, any of that stuff. What we want to... What we want to preserve and maintain is the fact that our military does not become a social experiment. We want the best of the best. We want to have standards that guide who, who's in what unit, what they do. And I'm going to tell you guys right, right now, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they are not, they are not doing this because they want the strongest military possible. Gentlemen, I hope my colleagues on the other side can understand what we're doing. Thank you so much. Mr. Speaker, to be recognized to have the words colored people. For what purposes generally seek recognition? I'd like to be recognized to have the words colored people stricken uh, from the record. I find it offensive and very inappropriate. Is the gentlelady asking for unanimous consent to take down the words? I am asking for unanimous consent to take down the words of referring to me or any of my colleagues as colored people. 
For what purposes, the gentleman from Arizona? Can I amend my comments to people of color? The gentleman wishes to amend his comments. Is the gentleman asking? Mr. Speaker, to have the word stricken. I didn't ask for an amendment. Is there unanimous consent to have the, have the word stricken? Yes. Without objection, so ordered. Without objection, so ordered. So, I want, so just so, some of y'all see some of y'all comments. Watch one of his fellow Republicans sitting behind him. Watch his reaction when white Republican Eli Crane says colored people. Watch this. Arizona. Well, Mr. Chairman, though, that was unbelievably inspiring. My amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve, okay? It has black people or anybody can serve, okay? do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve, okay? It has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody. The look, he was like, he like, did, did, did he just say color people? <laughs> this is who they are, Joe. I, I, I have this habit that I'll admit. Anytime I'm getting ready to take off my shirt because I've got my glasses on, I naturally take them off. Okay. So what happens is, even if seconds before I took off my glasses, seconds before I took off my shirt for some other reason, right? The glasses aren't on. But I still go like this, even though I did it seconds before. When you've done something and you've always done it and it's so natural, even in an audience where you know you'll be penalized for it, where you know you can't do it and you're not supposed to do it, and you're talking about people of color, so you know to train yourself, you don't do it. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, mm. the mouth speaks. And so, therefore, he talked about it. Like he used to talking about it, like he done it before, and like he'll do it again. And that's what you have in the United States of America. We're still here. Uh, he is a Republican from Arizona, Larry. Roland, I spent, uh, you know, my former boss, Congressman Owens, I spent many, many hours on the House floor discussing bills and amendments. I got to tell you, I never heard that before. That's a, that's a new one. And... Hmm. Mm. You know, we can't be surprised because this is pretty much, at least one thing with Republicans, they're consistent. <laughs> so I was surprised even when they have it stricken, the way they do things now, I'm surprised he wasn't like, no, I said it and said it with his chest. Mm. But mm. I'm quite sure uh, he maybe thought, I don't know, maybe thought he was going up on Fox News, but he'll probably end up on platforms like we're discussing them this evening. But once again, it's pretty consistent with what we've seen over the last couple of years from the Republican Party, so I'm not shocked. Candace. He told on himself. That's what he does at home. And trust me, he says more. And I think what's also interesting was that the amendment that he was even fighting for to prevent race or uh, nationality in recruiting um, uh, for any type of strategies and, and, and service uh, doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're not going to consider somebody's nationality um, when you're dealing with someone, somebody who might speak Arabic. You don't want to consider that when you're going into war with maybe a country that speaks Arabic or you to try to figure out the cultural differences uh, that might be um, in play when you're going uh, into war against other countries. Nothing that he made 
uh, said made sense in terms of the color comment or the amendment to begin with in terms of what we was fighting for. And none of us are surprised. Indeed, this is America. Uh, speaking of America, uh, it's always important to have white allies uh, who say and do what's right. So we came across this video. So uh, there were folks riding on the train, white woman, a couple of Muslims, uh, and the white woman decides to just show her racist ass. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, train riding Karen uh, just showed exactly who she is. But wait until the white conductor got in that ass. Watch. Smells like feces eaters, doesn't it? Say why, hi to TikTok. Why somebody's got a problem. Say hi to TikTok. Racist number one. Yup. Say it louder for her. You're ignorant. I don't sexualize children. That's ignorant. <laughs> and we do. And we do? Say, I didn't say you did. Must have a guilty conscience. Enjoy the white. Like, you sat next to us. Talk to them like that. I didn't like anything. Were they talking? What were they? Was she saying stuff she to you? She was so racist. Yeah. yeah. Ignorant remarks. Get off the train. I said, I, get off of the I train. said, I don't sexualize children. I'm not getting off the train because I You need I to said, get off of the train. You can't talk to the passengers like that. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm looking out the window. Every person in this car said that you were talking to them like that way. No, I don't know every person in this car, so I don't know what the problem was. You need to get off of the train. All right, look at me. You will never ride my train again. I will look at you and tell you you can't ride. Do you understand that? I can't physically remove you, but I can stop you from getting off. You do not talk to the passengers that I'm way. I'm not talking to them. Yes, you are. So get off in Hartford and do not get back on my train ever again. You see me, walk away. Okay? Thank you. God bless. You know, Maze featuring Frankie Beverly got a song called There's That Look in Your Eye. It's a lot of bigotry in that eye. And, and see, here's what got me. This, this is the one that I really love to hear, Kansas. Oof. Her ass was real bold. She was talking with a chest. Before the conductor came, then he came, well, I was looking outside the window. I was just, just, <laughs> I was just enjoying the plants and the trees. This is why I love cameras. We get to show these racist bigots, these Karens, these Beckys, these Margarets, exactly who the hell they are, and the Republican congressman from Arizona saying, colored people. Mm, mm. And, and you know, what's so heartwarming is the response, as you said, of that conductor. He, he was fair, he was forthright, but he made himself plain that this is not going to happen again. You can act like there's some type of parallel universe where you didn't say this, but we've got witnesses. It was like, it's like he was performing a little mini trial. He had witnesses, you know, he came, he gave his opening and closing argument, gave his decision, and she got her punishment. She's not gonna be allowed on the train anymore. As he said, if you see me, you better turn around. And I think that that was the wonderful part about it, is that you hope somebody will respond that way. Normally, we see these videos that go viral, and they kind of end up at the same point where somebody's fighting. But you, you don't often see somebody jump in with authority to come and quash it the way that he did. Joe? 
It's like uh, Morris Day in Turkow number three. You ain't got to go home, but you got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> I really appreciated how he came. He was very balanced. And he said, I've listened to these folks, and everybody on this train says uh, that you're being a certain way. And it is interesting how she, how she, how she crammed up. She, she wasn't as strong when, when, when he came after her like that. And and, mm. and 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 did the eye thing and everything. I mean, it was it was fantastic. I appreciated him being an ally that way uh, because it's about making people feel safe. Now, what is this person going to do anyway? She's not, in, you know, she, she, you know, why is her entitlement what it actually is? This just lets you know how folks think. Um, and so, I'm really glad that uh, he had those. We had that advocate show up in that particular situation, and hopefully, that kind of thing can happen more often. Larry? She messed around and, and found out. And we need more of that. We need more allies to come, you know, our defense, whether, you know, a situation on trains and classrooms and boardrooms. We need more allyship like this. And, you know, credit to him for doing the right thing. That's exactly what we should have done. But, Roman, this is another example of people from minoritized backgrounds through our country in terms of the, the challenges we encounter and just basically living our lives. So mm -hmm. the other thing is, when things like this happen, everyone go live. If say, and, and say it with your chest, as Dr. Carl likes to say a lot. So go live, and, you know, we need to keep tweeting this out, and, you know, people are watch, watching your show now. And we need to make sure we find out all the information and, you know, let our employer know how she's behaving. Yeah, just, you know, I'm looking outside the window. I mean, I wouldn't talk to anybody. <laughs> like, I'm looking outside the window. Like, why, why are you talking to me? Folks, earlier this week, uh, we talked about the story of Kathleen McElroy, uh, University of Texas journalism professor, longtime journalist, who signed a contract with Texas A&M to run the journalism department. Then they then proceeded uh, to change the contract three separate times, mm. uh, going mm. from a five-year contract with tenure to a five-year contract with no tenure to a one-year contract fired at will. Well, she said, hell no. Uh, and... Uh, this, of course, uh, has, um, you know, lit a lot of conversation, but this thing is way bigger than Kathleen McElroy. Uh, Larry, they're in your state, University of Florida, had three of several, three or four positions in their African American Studies Department uh, for, um, uh, and, and folks wouldn't take the jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, I was looking at a tweet today, let me try to pull it up. Uh, there was a tweet today, and that was a professor uh, at Texas A&M uh, who tweeted uh, that uh, that these types of actions is going that will have a direct impact. So Andrew Dessler is a professor of atmospheric sciences and a climate scientist uh, at Texas A&M, net native Texan. Uh, let me find the tweet here. Um, uh, this is what. Um, let's see here. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Um, and, and he, what he's talking about, uh, we're going to see more of this. And so go to my iPad. He said, this is such a disaster for Texas A&M. Who in their right mind will take the job as head of the journalism program? Then he tweets, uh, let me make a provocative statement. Long-term excellence in a university is impossible without the backing of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The reason? There's a significant number of scholars who won't associate with an institution perceived as discriminatory. He says the size of this group is large enough that even academics who might not be personally invested in DEI avoid such institutions as they are aware that the lack of DEI hampers the recruitment of other top-tier faculties. Last comment here. He said, this is already happening. 
We had an offer out for a tenure track faculty position. And after this news came out two days ago, the person called and turned down the offer explicitly because of this. This right here is what President Kathleen Banks had better wake up and realize what is going to happen. This is what Chancellor John Sharp had better make clear to the idiots of the Texas A&M University Board of Regents that this is going to be a problem. And what this is doing, Larry, this is actually curbing opportunities for black academics. And what it is going to do, it is going to call <laughs> black academics to, to question, well, I don't even want to go to these places in Texas and Florida. And so if they're complaining about losing uh, the best black talent, and they don't mind that black talent on the football field. They love them some four- and five-star athletes, but clearly they don't want four- and five-star faculty, Larry. Roland, you highlighted, and I, and I texted you about when this story came out. You told me that you were, you know, you were going to bring the noise the other day, earlier this week, and you did. So I think, Roland's important is black folks only make up 6% of faculty members at post-secondary institutions. We make up 14% of the U.S. population. And we're a small community, and we talk a lot. Because you got to let people know, I'm applying a job here. I got an offer here. Should I go here? Should I not go here? And you're right. It's already having an impact on certain states that people are deciding to or not to go to. And, Roland, I think what's really important about this conversation is we're not talking about the, econ the long-term economic impact. There are some brilliant black minds in higher education, colleagues and other people th that I read their work. When they decide they're not going to a particular state, that's a loss. That means you won't, that person won't apply for work there and apply for grants, multi-million dollar grants. And also, you won't be able to attract students to attend an institution. So these states and institutions that take these particular um, stances are having, it will have a long-term negative impact on their bottom line, and they just don't see it. And what this is also speaking to, Ken, is, and this is why I'm trying to get people to understand how you have to broaden this. So imagine if you are an African-American, but you're downstream. You're not a Kathleen McElroy. You're, you don't have tenure at some other particular place. Uh, you're trying to get there. You're like, I don't want to go to a place like that. I don't want to go to essentially a hostile environment. The fact that the Texas and border regions would listen to some crank-ass right-wing mm -hmm. website who tried to say that, oh, she was this radical leftist who's all about uh, DEI. And for President Kathleen Banks to fall for that. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. BS mm. and accept it and not stand up to the regions and tell them they are wrong. I'm telling you right now, if I was a black academic, I would say, the hell with Texas A&M, don't even come talk to me. Which is why I'm saying that black athletes should say the exact same thing. Don't give a Texas A&M your talent right now as an athlete when they don't want your talent when you no longer can run up and down the field on DEI Saturday afternoons. And especially when leadership can be easily persuaded when they were already in contractual obligations and negotiations 
with this esteemed journalist. She signed the contract. She, that's right. She, that's right. She signed the contract. And lest we forget that she was brought in with fanfare. There were balloons and crepe paper and a table and all of that. Then there were questions about what was going on with what she had written in the past, stuff that was on her CV, stuff that they probably asked her about in the interview process. There is no way that an academic would want to go to this school, I would imagine, within years if they are African-American, because there's nothing solid saying, you are going to support me, whether we have a contract signed or not. Everything is in flux. This is a woman who was going to this school without tenure. That is unbelievable. When you're someone on her level, you go to a school and they offer you that tenure on a silver platter. It is hard to get. And if you go to a school without tenure, you're going to be facing the same people that persuaded everybody uh, to refuse her to come in. You're going to be facing them on your tenure and application and the board and the process. So all along, you already have signs right now. If you are black, this isn't the school for you. Not this year, probably not next year, and probably not the next year after. Oh, when you look at the when you look at the Supreme Court decision dealing with affirmative action, when you look at uh, these attacks on DEI in Florida and Texas and all these southern states, what we're talking about, and I need people to understand what I'm about to say. We are talking about white conservatives today literally trying to limit the economic viability of African-Americans for the future. That's what these actions are doing. These are not just, oh, there's no big deal. Oh, this is just a small percentage of folks uh, at Harvard and the Ivy League schools. No, you are seeing white conservative Republicans who control South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Arkansas, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, you are seeing them institute these type of things across their particular states. And you're going to see it happen, Republicans in Pennsylvania. Democrats now control uh, Michigan, but Republicans used to control uh, the legisl legislature there. You're going to see this in Iowa. You're going to see it in places where they control both chambers and the governor's mansion. For all the problems universities and colleges have, et cetera, sometimes they can do a little bit better at these things because you're dealing with educated people. Um, educated people, shame on Texas A&M, because educated people ought to know better. You had, aside from the contractual situations, I've signed a contract, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the whole idea that they would allow themselves to be taken from this because of some side chatter, it makes Texas A&M look bad. Then, as the point was made before, it makes them, it makes people less likely to give grants. It makes people that would come to get those grants less likely to want to study there and less likely to go to an environment that they consider to be hostile. And then what ends up happening is that university or that system ends up being downgraded because they aren't going to be able to get mm -hmm. the talent, because they aren't going right. to be able to get the grants, because a lot of folks that give grants, organizations, are looking for people with more progressive thoughts, and mm -hmm. certainly people that aren't getting rid of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So educated people ought to know better. 
um, and we will see what happens here. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, there's going to be a consequence to pay for these folks that decide because it's DUI, we can have it on Saturday afternoon, but no other time. Let's see mm -hmm. if one affects the other and see where they are then. So I make this last point here. I need everybody to understand because when we talk about the power of voting, I need you to understand that this is a result of that. And that is this here. The last three cycles, you saw black voter turnout drop. What that is happening, if we as black people, let me be perfectly clear, because you can listen to these yahoos out here who rant and rave on YouTube, okay, who don't trust this, don't trust that. Those people are stupid. <laughs> Understand this. If we as black people do not maximize our voting power, we are furthering empower hardcore right. I have been, did not not warn y'all about right wing folk taking over school boards. Did not warn y'all about that. What happened? Moms for Liberty ran folks all across the South. What's the first thing they did when they got uh, to South Carolina? They start firing black superintendents. That's black professionals. They start firing black educators working for the districts. That's black professionals. That's somebody's mama, somebody daddy, somebody grandmother, somebody, somebody aunt and uncle. I keep telling y'all. So people say, man, voting don't matter. Damn sure did there. Now they're firing our people. They're controlling the curriculum of black kids. And so we had better understand that we are in a political war. It is an economic war. It is an education war. It is a cultural war. And it's a voting war. And that's why they're doing as best they can to challenge people on the voting rolls, to kick them off, because they are targeting. And listen to me clearly, and y'all can mark the date at uh, 7.57 p.m. Eastern on July 13, 2023. They have their eyes set, locked, and loaded for November 2024. They are saying... We got the Supreme Court. If we get the White House and we keep the House and we take the Senate and we already control 30 state legislatures and governor's mansions, we can do whatever the hell we want. And for y'all listening to them yahoos who say, man, that vote stuff not going to do anything, those are the same people complaining about what they want and you're guaranteed to never get it if Republicans are in charge. Think I'm lying? Try it and see what happens after Election Day in 2024. Gonna go to a break, we come back, we're gonna talk about menthol cigarettes. Black people have been targeted for decades of menthol cigarettes. Now there's an effort to try to ban them uh, in, from the FDA. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. For decades, the tobacco industry has deliberately targeted black communities and kids with marketing for menthol cigarettes. It's had a devastating impact on black health. Tobacco use claims 45,000 black lives every year. It's the number one cause of preventable death. In the 1950s, less than 10% of black smokers used menthol cigarettes. Today, it's 85%. Ban menthol cigarettes. Save lives. 
I'm Farad Muhammad, live from LA. And this is The Culture. The Culture is a two-way conversation. You and me, we talk about the stories, politics, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. So join our community every day at 3 p.m. Eastern and let your voice be heard. Hey, we're all in this together. So let's talk about it and see what kind of trouble we can get into. It's The Culture, weekdays at 3, only on the Black Star Network. Hi, my name is Freddie Ricks. I'm from Houston, Texas. My name is Sharon Williams. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Right now, I'm rolling with Roland Martin. Unfiltered, uncut, unplugged, and undamn believable. You hear me? Cigarettes uh, have a significant impact on the health of African Americans, contributing to heart attacks, uh, lung cancer, uh, strokes, and other diseases. Joining us right now uh, to uh, talk about uh, this, uh, bring my guests up, please, uh, folks. This is um, a really, a really, really important story. Anybody knows I can't stand smoking, uh, and so, um, uh, so again, uh, want to bring up. Uh, the guest right now, give me one second here. Uh, Mignon Guy, chair of the Department of African American Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University uh, out of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and um, uh, let's really break this thing down. People don't understand, there's a direct intersection of black-owned media. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. And menthol cigarettes, explain. Well, <laughs> Black-owned media and, and a multitude of other um, organizations as well. Unfortunately, the tobacco industry has done a great job in infiltrating Black communities in multitude of, of fashion. Um, they've infiltrated by early early on in the days they would advertise with um, you know ebony and jet and use ads of, of black images and try to portray a, a certain type of black culture that they wanted to sell to the public and um, and and it happened to work marketing works right and they brought this into our communities by infiltrating our media by infiltrating our 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 churches, our political organizations, such as Congressional Black Caucus, you name it. They've, they've done very well at spending but, their multi-billions of dollars trying to get into our community. But, but we have to add this, but we have to add this. And the reason that happened is because all of the other advertisers would not advertise in black media. So as a result, if you were Ebony, if you were Jet, 
if you were black newspapers, if you were black on radio, all these other companies would not advertise in black owned media. And I dare say, and I know people may think this is crazy, without this advertising, a lot of black owned media would have died. And that was the dilemma that black owned media was in. And that is, damn, cigarettes, because you couldn't, because at, at that time, you couldn't do alcohol. So it's kind of like, look, they were coming there, and I, I remember full page ads in Ebony. That's right. Full page ads in Jet when other folks, car companies uh, and other brands would not touch black owned media. That's right. That's right. They they exploited, they, I mean, they were very good at exploiting vulnerabilities in the black community, right? So if certain organizations didn't have funding or didn't have support, then in comes the industry and to save the day, right? But but the whole time, they're they're actually peddling a poison to our communities. And I don't, it's really, I have such a push-pull sort of feeling about this because, you know, they've also done this with, with HBCUs. They've, they've funded HBCUs and given them, them money and support because they don't get enough money from Congress or they don't give enough money for, for the, from the federal government in order to survive and in order to serve our students the way that we need them to. So in comes the tobacco industry to come save the, the day, but it's, it's at too great of a cost. It's at a cost of 45,000 lives every year. And, and not only this, uh, who remembers, uh, uh, who remembers this uh, right here uh, that you see right here? Now, right. again, I, I need everybody to understand. When you hear the phrase "cool jazz festival," you're thinking, "Oh shit, this cool." No, 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 no. This is what they were advertising: the cool filters. Right. When right. you when you Newport. Same thing. You, yeah. you, th you think Newport Jazz Festival? You think, you think, oh, no, no. Newports. Uh, not right. only that, when you go back to, again, go to the 70s, the Virginia Slims Tennis Tour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That wasn't named after a slim woman named Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sure wasn't. It was and, if, and then, product. but but the and the last one. So and, and again, I'm talking African Americans, but um, um, you also had why is it escaping me right now? For the long oh, uh, the Winston Cup in NASCAR. Yep. The Winston, what no man named Winston? That was a cigarette brand. So the cigarette companies, they were massive spenders of advertising and that didn't really end until you had those state those state lawsuits where they began to lose those and part of the agreement when those lawsuits they had to stop advertising that's right that's right and you know it's funny you mentioned that because not only did they did they did they infiltrate black communities by media right we i live in richmond virginia right now i'm a new transplant to, to to the confederacy as i call it on our camp i live in Richmond, Virginia, it's a predominantly black area, and you walk onto our campus, and what do you see is the Altria Theater, which is owned by Philip Morris, right? So they have their they have their way of going into these communities in multiple ways. And I've done other shows recently, and and folks would call in and they would talk about how um, 
the only people that could get the only decent jobs that that black folks could get in some some of the tobacco regions was with the tobacco industry. And so they would give them well-paying jobs and they would they would give them security where they couldn't get jobs in other places. And what happened? They gave them free cigarettes to take home and to give to their families and to give to their friends. So so they had media and they still have media. They just do digital media now. Right. Because they can't do the billboards anymore. So they had the media cornered. They they came into the communities by by giving churches funding, and they would they would support certain types of, um, you know, gatherings and things of that nature. Those festivals that you referred to, which was perfect, married it with with music, so it seemed okay and it seemed like it was part of the culture. And then they gave them jobs, and and they still do it today. They still try to recruit black uh, scientists to come over to to the industry to try to work for them as well. Uh, again, and again, it's just one of those things people really don't understand how deep uh, this went. Deep. And, and then when you talk about those events, it was literally buying tables at every black event, black conferences. Uh, I mean, it was uh, extremely uh, deep uh, in the black community. Uh, questions from our panel. Uh, Candace, you first. So we've been talking about this push and pull. As you said, they provided money to media companies and they provide jobs. But I've been reading about this push and pull, too, in terms of black clergy, black clergy and store owners saying, hey, listen, you can't just get rid of these menthol uh, cigarettes because people are going to find other ways around it and you're going to be taking away business from us. So I'm wondering what's your response to that for people saying this is going to hurt us economically we have to do something else because prohibition is never going to work. Didn't work with alcohol. Didn't work with abortion. Hasn't worked with a lot of stuff. So, uh, so before before she answers that, uh, I'm gonna tell you something. So, and again, people need to understand how they buy off people. And let me be perfectly clear: uh, the ads that you see running for this campaign, we're being paid to run those ads. I got no problem saying that. But I despise cigarettes. I'm allergic to smoke. So. I would say ban all that shit. I'm perfectly fine with it. But here's, <laughs> but here's what I, I, I need people to understand. It was a few years ago. So you got two black chambers. You have the Black Chamber of Commerce that Harry Alford uh, 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 runs, okay? And they always paying them to do stuff. I'm being straight up. Then you got U.S. Black Chambers, Inc. So a few years ago when this issue came up, all of a sudden we see these news releases and Alford's group was saying, oh no, we, you know, we can't support this because this is gonna hurt the black-owned convenience stores. That was what they were using. I got an email last year from uh, a black political operative who you see on television, on one of the networks, trying to stop the ban, the FDA ban on menthols. And they pulled in some prominent black pastors and black lawyers. So they were trying to book them on my show. And I was like, hell no, that shit ain't happening. And then of course, Politico, Politico later did a story on the black civil rights and folks and lawyers who were being paid off. They were trying to use that very argument, uh, Candace, oh, it's gonna hurt the black convenience stores. Until you start trying to add up, how many black convenience stores do you actually have that are being impacted. They're like, oh, it's gonna hurt the black on bodegas in New York. Yeah. Who? Yeah. So, they, they, so they've tried to use, I mean, uh, the economic, oh, you're gonna hurt black people. 
when, hold up, how many people die per year? 45,000 lives per year. That's, yes. That's black lives or total lives? 45,000 black lives. So 45,000 black lives. Mm -hmm. And we ain't talking the untold millions we got to spend on health care as a result of this. And menthol cigarettes are a lot different than other cigarettes, correct? Yes. Yes, they're absolutely different. So menthol cigarettes actually are more addictive. Menthol cigarette smokers tend to have more nicotinic receptors in their brains, right? And so it makes it more difficult for them to quit. The smoking topography is different. How you inhale the products are different because they have the coolants and they have the sugars in them that makes the poison go down more smoothly. Mm. That's why, and the reason why they have these coolants in there, excuse me, one of the one of the, the appeals of, of the menthol cigarettes are the coolants, which make them more appealing to young people, to young kids. We have black kids who are age 12, between 12 and 18, that use these products. And we also have white children that start using these products earlier because it makes the poison go down more smoothly. Not only do they increase the nicotinic receptors, they make them more addictive. They make them more difficult to quit smoking. That's why we have such low rates of quitting amongst black people. And I will get back to that the, the store owner thing. We don't, we don't have, when we go to these neighborhoods, let's look at the, who owns the stores in the neighborhoods. They're usually not black people, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't own the things that we need to be owning in our own communities. We often see other groups and other populations that own these products. So the economic impact on the stores compared to the devastating economic impact on the lives that we're losing, it's, it's just, it's a no brainer. You know what I'm saying? We're talking about potentially 37% of the menthol, excuse me, 37% of this of the cigarette market is menthol cigarettes. 85% of the people who smoke menthol are black people. Those are the, those are the- And 94% of black youth who smoke, smoke menthol. Mm. Boom, mm. exactly. It's those, those arguments that we hear, the arguments about store ownership, about the economic impact, which, which doesn't match the, the, the cost associated with healthcare that we have, right? The arguments that we hear about, they're the same people that, that, that Roland Martin is speaking about, those, I, I guess I can't say their names on TV, but, but these political <laughs> leaders, these high profile leaders will say things mm -hmm. like, well, black people deserve to, they, they have the right to choose what they wanna smoke and what they wanna do. They're not accounting for those 90% of the youth that, that Roland referred to. They're not accounting for the exposure to youth that buy secondhand smoke because black populations unfortunately have the high, the lowest rates of in-home smoking bans. So when we have children that are exposed to these products, they also have nicotinic receptors that are that are producing in their brains, and so they're more likely to smoke. And let's talk about, let's not miss mm. the fact that the highest, the high, what what do we have in terms of mortality for children, black children in particular? It's asthma, right? We have asthma issues. Those kids are exposed right. to the smoke, and therefore they have higher rates of hospitalization and death associated with their exacerbated asthma that is complicated by this menthol cigarette smoking. Uh, and uh, I remember when we first started this show, again, I need everybody watching to understand, we first started Roller Martin Unfiltered, we had one advertiser, uh, the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, thanks to my frat brother, Lee Saunders. Do you know who all of a sudden wanted to advertise with us? Jewel. Ooh. 
not 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 Jewel Osco Grocers, not a jewelry store. Jewel, uh, they had the uh, the flavored uh, vapes, correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. They have flavored. So flavored they vapes. so they they came to us uh, and was trying to throw some serious money, and my response was, "Y'all can kiss my ass." Thank you, <laughs> because you know mm. what? Other people did not. There are who will remain nameless. There is at least one HBCU that took $7.5 million um, of money from Juul in order mm. to study Juul in black populations before black people were actually using that product. Do you think that they were doing that for the good of the community? Wow. Larry, yeah. your question. Yeah, so we essentially have, based on this conversation, you know, our research is intersection of public health and capitalism, <laughs> right? Racial, so, racial, racial capitalism. Racial capitalism, racial, right? Racial capitalism. Yeah, let's be clear about that. So, and, and on top of that, it's during a time of anti-blackness. <laughs> so all these black people are dying. We're talking about the, how much money it costs, obviously, healthcare and also the counters, as Roland talked about in terms of, you know, what it costs black entrepreneurs. And so I was curious in terms of what you think the argument is, considering capital, black, you know, racial capitalism, public health, and anti-blackness, what is the argument you make to policymakers about why this is why this is an important issue? The fact that the fact that menthol is in our in our neighborhoods. Let's let's make it very clear. The tobacco industry, as I'm a chair of Black Studies, right? The tobacco industry was 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 studying black communities. Thank you for showing this. The, the tobacco industry was was studying black communities before my discipline even existed. They were looking at the woes and the, the, the lack of civil rights and, and all of the oppression that was happening in these communities. They used redlining, these racist tactics, in order, this, these vestiges of racist tactics that, act, that actually continue into the present with residential segregation, they used these racial racist um, maps that the federal government gave them in order to target black communities and sell these products. And, and somehow it's now been contorted and distorted to think that somehow menthol is naturally part of the black community. No, this was a concerted effort, right? So my argument to these individuals is that this is, to take this out of our communities, this is reparations. Because what they've done is they created the roadmap for for them to for these products to go into our neighborhoods. They refused in the Family Smoking Prevention Act, Tobacco Control Act of 2009. They refused to ban menthol. They banned every other uh, flavored uh, cigarette, like cherry and and you know all kinds of other cloves and things like that. Things that people didn't even use. They refused to. They 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 banned all of these because these are what white kids might use. And they kept menthol on the market, which was 85% of the black population that was using, using them. So, so my argument is, this is reparations. My argument is, this is a chance to clean up this poison and this drug that you have uh, permitted this industry to infiltrate into our community. So before I go uh, to Joe's question, this is a political story from last year. And again, here was the new argument they tried last year, okay? They tried last year to say, oh, that this is going to lead to over-policing of black communities. And so uh, this, is, th th this was, July, this was uh, April 28, 
2002-2. So concerns about over-policing threaten to stall a ban on menthol cigarettes and undermine the major tobacco regulation a decade in the making. And so you literally had uh, CBC members, uh, you had, the article says here, Reverend Al Sharpton, civil rights attorney Ben Crump, and relatives of George Floyd right. have argued that the rules should they can take effect would give law enforcement another reason to target black people. Uh, I mean, you literally had this. Uh, it, this this was in their story. Then uh, that was, this story says members of the Congressional Black Caucus are divided. But an aid to the group said that the push from civil rights leaders over recent weeks has caused members to give greater thought to what could be potential unintended consequences. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, Donald uh, McEachin, who actually who has passed away, uh, he was quoted in here as well. And so again, w what you had here was different arguments being targeted. The goal was not to deal with over-policing. The goal was not to deal with anything else. The goal was to keep black people buying menthol cigarettes. Joe. There is so much to know and to learn about this. I, I like to think I'm somebody that pays attention to the issue. But this has been very educational for me. So tell me how, you know, because we have to do so much, you know, when there's the job arguments, you've got to have the counter to that. Where are our jobs going to come from? When there's the over-policing arguments, we've got to have our counters to that. There's so many. This is a multi-front war. How do you feel that it's going in terms of educating people? Do you feel like we're making progress or do you feel like you're beating your head against the wall? Depends on the day. <laughs> um, I think that having having platforms such as this is really important. It's critically important. Um, being able to, most of the arguments that have been presented today um, and the ones that were in the news, such as the hyper-policing and over-policing in black and brown communities, which is another topic, and I do um, want to make sure that, uh, that I acknowledge the fact that um, police brutality and hyper-policing and over-policing is, is a, an issue. Uh, if I could have a moment just to clear it up to your audience, because I really want to address this. This ban is potentially, the, the excuse me, the potential ban, because I'm not even sure that they'll even do right by us and actually do what they should and ban it. The ban is at the manufacturer's level. It is at the manufacturer, the wholesaler, the distributor, and the retailer. It is not at the individual unit of analysis. It is not for a black person that if they happen to get a menthol cigarette somehow that is smoking it, that they, that has no effect on them, right? So, so the argument of policing is, is a little bit problematic simply because of the fact that the ban is at the industry and those who are selling it not at the people who may have get, you know, get their hands on it, right? That's the first thing that I wanted to say. The second thing is, is that I'm, I'm concerned about the thought that we, we can't do both. How come, you know, we can, we want to talk about save black lives against police brutality, but we don't want to save black lungs when it comes to cigarettes and, and cancer and every other disease, actually, because menthol, cigarettes actually affect every organ in the body. And we know that, that black people have more comorbidities than anyone else, right? So we can't save both lives in both cases. You know what I'm saying? Does it have to be an and or? Can it be a both and? Can we, can we actually deal with corrupt policing and racist police officers that do exist? And can we also save the lives that, that, of children and, and adults that use, these, that use these products, that are addicted to these products, that we don't even have good evidence-based practices to help them quit? Right. So it's not like people people always want to say to me, well, Mignon, if people want to quit smoking menthol cigarettes, they'll just quit. No, 
Menthol cigarettes are much harder to quit. Right, right. That's another reason why we have to ban this product. It should not be on the market because we don't even have decent evidence-based practices in order to help people quit appropriately. Um, I'm going to read this and I'm going to get a final comment uh, because this because this this was the political story y'all last year, and we and uh, Mignon addressed it earlier. A 2021 study found that although Black Americans make up 12% of the population, 13%, they incurred 41% of all deaths and 50% of the years of life lost due to menthol cigarettes between 1980 and 2018. Well, let me say that again. Mm. We make up 12 to 13% of the population. But of the people who die with, to menthol cigarettes, we make up 41% of the deaths and 50% of the years of life lost. Years of life lost means income lost, family time lost. That has a direct impact on our ability to create wealth. That actually makes it even more economically difficult on our families because we're dying younger. And while we are then dying because of that, we're incurring higher medical costs, putting our folks in more economic danger as well. So right. folks need to understand that. Candace asked the point earlier, she read in her question, uh, and isn't it correct? Because again, for the people who say, because I think she, she asked, people are gonna say, oh, they, they can always get this here. There was a dramatic decrease when those lawsuits were successful when it came to folks smoking. And the reality is the tobacco industry, the reason they went to the vapes and the flavored uh, stuff, because people actually stopped smoking when the bans went into effect, correct? That's right, that's right, that's right. And we also see in, in Canada, Canada has already banned menthol cigarettes. Other countries have banned menthol cigarettes. You know, we, we are holding on to it because we have 37, menthol cigarettes are 37% of the market, 85% of the black people who smoke smoke menthol. It's, we're throwaways in this country, Boom. right? We're throwaways in this country. They left us on the table in 2009, and, and if, if, if we give them the opportunity, they'll leave us on the table again, right? And yes, people will quit. When you look at, when you talk to smokers, I'm, I study tobacco. When you speak, and I'm a former smoker, see, so I can even speak from that, from that viewpoint, that vantage point. When you Ooh, Lord, smoker, thank God you're a former smoker, because uh, we couldn't get along if you were smoking. I'm going to go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but hey, come on, it's a folly of youth. So, but, but when you speak to smokers, the vast majority of people who smoke want to quit. They want to quit, right? So we're not talking about, some, about imposing something on them that they don't already want. The vast majority want to quit. It's very difficult. It's very hard. It's harder to quit smoking cigarettes than it is to quit heroin. This is a fact. So when we're talking about this, we really need to understand that we that that what we do with this with this potential ban because I'm not convinced it's going to happen. I've never, 
Sorry, I'm not speaking. I, you know, I do work on the FDA's uh, tobacco scientific advisory board. So I'm telling you in advance, I'm not speaking on behalf of the FDA. I'm speaking on behalf of on behalf of Mignon Guy, a black woman who lives in America. And I have very rarely seen the federal government do right by black people, which is why I call this reparations, because this is the time for them to get it right. And you know, one more thing I want to I want to say to you before we wrap up. One thing that we have to be really cognizant of is there's there's so much counter market there's so much um, misinformation and disinformation that the industry is putting out right now, and a lot of the arguments that we're talking about are exactly those arguments. There's when you get on the FDA calls to listen to comments, you hear people that 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 it's on the phone so you can't see what they look like but you hear them say well i'm a i'm a i'm a black police officer in this neighborhood or i'm a white police officer in this neighborhood and i'm worried that that if we ban menthol then then the, we'll have more policing in black neighborhoods when have you ever heard a police officer say that they are worried about hyper policing police brutality and over policing in black neighborhoods these people are being paid these people are being paid. And the industry has, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. They have a lot of money to yep. pay these people, Yep. right? We already know that they paid black people in, in California to, to vote against, to, to go protest against the ban that they, thank God, got through in California. Yep. But there was already an ad out that, that showed that they were getting paid $80 an hour for two and a half hours of work to get black people, black people to come out with T-shirts, almost looking like the ones that, that were like, Blacks vote for Trump, right? To ban, to vote against, to uh, to to vote against the 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 ban on menthol. So they're taking our own people to vote against our own interests to save our own black lungs and to save our own black lives. Yep. We cannot allow this to happen. Uh, we absolutely cannot allow this to happen. Uh, and again, I just need people to understand. They wanted to pay me a lot of money to advertise Jewel on this show. And I said no. And I need, and so, so to our audience, when I'm talking about we're fighting these advertising battles, when I'm talking about when, when I'm asking you to contribute and give, do understand why, it's because there are folks who want to come to us uh, and yes, these, these tobacco companies. And for me on principle, it's an absolute no, period. But guess what? If we don't have this show, we can't counter the messaging. And so you have to understand, and that's, that was the trick that they used against Black-owned media in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. And I'm talking about they had 26 and 52-week ad buys for newspapers which is unheard of, and they had 12-month ad buys in magazines when no other major advertisers were willing to give them the kind of money. So just understand what uh, Professor Guy is laying out. It was a clear, it was a clear play on Jim Crow racist policies, filling the void, knowing full well we needed the money, but what it also did was it gave them and inroad into our lungs and our households. And we are paying the price. Professor Guy, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Look forward to having you back. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for not for keeping the good fight. Thanks a bunch. Candace.
Larry, Joe, I appreciate y'all being on my panel. Thank you so very much. Candace, thanks a bunch for guest hosting for me on Monday and Tuesday when I was uh, in Rhode Island for the Jeffrey Osborne Golf Tournament. Great job. Thanks a bunch. Folks, y'all have a fabulous, fabulous weekend. Again, folks, uh, please support us in what we do. That segment you just heard, you're not going to hear. ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, give 30 minutes to an in-depth conversation on menthol cigarettes and black people. Hell, you're not gonna see that on BET's new black show, that, that once a month show. You're not gonna see it anywhere else. This is why black on media matters. This is why Roland Martin Unfiltered matters. This is why Black Star Network matters. And please support us in what we do. Cause I'm telling y'all, they wanted to give me a lot of money. It was six figures. And let me tell you something right now, I just want y'all to understand, the first year of this show, I had I came out of pocket $391,000 to keep this show on the air. Oh, that money would have been huge, but I simply could not take it. And so please support us in what we do by sending your check and money orders to PO Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal are Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale, rolling at rollinsmartin.com, rolling at rollinmartinunfiltered.com. Uh, and of course, uh, support us by downloading our app, Blackstone Network app, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. And you can buy my book, White Fear, How the Browning of America is Making White Folks Lose Their Minds. Available at bookstores nationwide. Folks, I'll see y'all tomorrow right here from our Washington DC studios right here on Black Lives Matter Plaza, two blocks from the White House, nation's capital. Holla! Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, What's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.